Death is often a subject that we avoid. As a culture, we tend to distance ourselves from those difficult conversations. When we think of someone who's dying, we often reserve ourselves, even consider how our culture engages funerals. Perhaps some of you this morning remember a time in your life when you were younger, when the casket was actually brought to your house, and it stayed there for a number of days. And the mourning went on for a longer period of time. Now we try to get it over with as quickly as possible, put it out of our minds so that we don't have to grieve in those moments. It's interesting to think about even our own burial practices. As Christians, our practices are because of what we understand about human dignity, Uh, that our lives are meaningful even in death. We see a glimpse here even in the Judeo-Christian practices that would follow because of Scripture. Even in our text this morning, the way that Jesus' body was, was handled, it was cared for. In some cultures, bodies are lit on fire and sent down a river, hoping that when they're reincarnated, they'll come back in a better place. But for us as Christians, we, we understand that when, when we put a Christian in the ground, this is just a temporary state. As temporary as the three days that Jesus was in that tomb in Jerusalem. It is interesting how so much of how we think about death is even influenced in our passage this morning. I bring all of this to our mind because how we understand this subject causes a variety of responses in a room this size. Even there on Calvary when these three men were being executed, there were a variety of responses to what they saw. Some stood at a distance. Others were complicit in the the activity. And the crowds that had at the beginning of the day cried crucify, crucify, had been affected so deep in their souls that they hung their head in grief and sorrow as they recognized that an innocent man had just been executed. I wonder what it was like for those who made it their regular responsibility or duties given to them by their commanders to execute these individuals. Perhaps their hearts had become so hardened to to death and the gore and the, the sufferings of a crucifixion that it was just another day on the job. Perhaps even for the centurion that we'll see this morning, it was just another day. But just like the thief on the cross, he had a divine appointment. God had sovereignly placed this individual at this particular execution 
of all the executions he would have witnessed in his life, that God might save him for his glory. We've been considering over the last several weeks the final days and hours of Jesus' life. If this were a movie, and it's not, the movie would have covered the first three years of Jesus' ministry in the first, say, 30 minutes of the film. But in the last hour, the pace of the story has slowed to a grinding halt. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, I'll show you how even in our text this morning, Luke, one by one, mentions particular facts. He has slowed his pace down as he considers and reflects upon the eyewitness accounts that he has compiled together. You'll be helped to remember that Luke is writing a two-part volume. This Gospel of Luke and Acts make up a two-volume set where Luke is writing to an early Christian named Theophilus. He was a friend of his. and Luke was a physician that traveled with the Apostle Paul. He was an important ministry partner for Paul. And as Luke traveled around the known world, he began to compile eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. He interviewed Peter. He interviewed Mary. He interviewed a variety. He even interviewed, most likely, the centurion that is mentioned in our text today. After all, how did he get this eyewitness account if he had not asked him? Luke is compiling this narrative not merely to communicate biographical information about Jesus, but to give us and Theophilus an orderly account that we might have assurance of the things that we've come to know and believe. So if you want to think about that more, if you're sort of just jumping in with this, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke makes this explicitly clear that he writes in order that we would have assurance And even this morning as we think about the the details of the cross and the death of Christ and this, this burial procedure, all of it is meant to give you and I assurance, confidence that Jesus really did die. That men put their hands on Him and wrapped Him up. If it was just a a fact that He had passed out from the pain, well surely they would have known that they were dealing with a man who was alive. No, they, they felt it. They saw it. Jesus died as an innocent man in the place of sinners. With that in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and this morning we're going to consider verses 44 through 56. It's found on page 884 in the Pew Bibles Provided. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to just grab that one. If it looks nice, take it home. If it's looking a little shabby, look around, find a nicer one to take with you. Take it home and read it, and you will get to know God through it. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over 
the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun was, sunlight was failing. And, a, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come from Galilee followed and saw the tomb as and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Friend, we could organize this in this way. The theological meaning behind the information supplied as we consider the whole of the apostles' teaching on this particular text is that Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, died in the place of sinners as the wrath-bearing, sin-atoning substitute so that you could have access to the Father. Jesus opened a new and better way through His death. He restored our relationship that was broken with God. We could summarize it in just a, a short way. Jesus died so that you could live. Jesus died so that you wouldn't. As we think about this text this morning, in all of its glory, in all of its beauty, in all of its sorrow and sadness and brokenness, friend, I believe that the one response that Luke has given us is that of the centurion man, and that's worship. When we consider what Jesus has accomplished, it ought to ignite and fuel our worship of Jesus. This is why we sang so many songs this morning. So friend, if you're visiting with us and you wondered, those people like to sing a lot. Wow. Don't they know there's other things to do? No, friend, when, when you sit and stare at the cross long enough, all you can do is but sing and worship and adore Him. Well, this morning, I want to organize our thoughts around two observations. Two observations. So there's really just two main points we want to think about. First, the vivid details of the narrative. Again, I indicated that Luke has really slowed down. Just beat after beat, thump, 
like a heartbeat, slowed. He's not racing through the text. He's, he's not racing through the information. He wants you to take each of these sentences and like a diamond in the sunlight, turn it ever so slightly and see all of the sovereign meticulousness of our God who purposed your redemption in this way. So we're going to notice first the vivid details and then secondly, the varied responses. The varied responses. It's interestingly, in this short text, there is four different responses to what we see from the centurion to the crowd to the disciples to the heroic actions of Joseph of Arimathea. So have your Bibles open. Let's, let's walk through them first, the vivid details. Luke records the timing of Jesus' death. Now each of the, the various gospel writers are approaching this in a different way. So you might grow frustrated. You say, well, one mentions one time, one mentions another time. Well, one thing to remember is they're not scientific like we are. You know, we're very precise in our timing. Um, so you might find Mark mentions that, you know, things happened a little bit earlier in the day. Well, he's thinking of things a little differently than even Luke is. Luke here is staring at the cross, if you will. He, he has our mind on the cross, and he tells us that it was the sixth hour. That is noon, high noon. This is the sun is at the highest point in the sky. It is now noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now we're at three p.m. in the afternoon. So from noon until 3 p.m., there is darkness over the land. So imagine, this is the brightest part of the day. And all of a sudden, everything goes dark. Someone turns the light out. Now, some have wrongly suggested that this was a solar eclipse. That's impossible. You might say, well, how do we know that? Well, it's because it's the Passover. The Passover always happens on a full moon. That means it is impossible for the moon to be in front of the sun because it's in a totally opposite position. You can go think about that later. You scratch your head about it. It's what it is. This is a miracle. This darkness is spreading over the land. Why? As a sign of God's judgment. Not only on the people, but on His own Son. See, throughout Scripture, the this picture of darkness is always accompanied by God's judgment. A number of examples of that. One of the most clear is Joel chapter 2, verse 10. So you can write that down, look at it later. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. Joel prophesies, The earth quakes before him, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. What is Joel doing? He is saying that God in His judgment, is so fearful that even creation runs away when God shows up in judgment. It's as if the stars, like, get out of town. The sun says, see you later. The moon gets as far away from God in His judgment as they can. But darkness is also emblematic of evil. So, for example, uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. Or Jesus in John's Gospel, uh, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You see, this, this 
sign of darkness was meant to convey to all those gathered there that God was pouring out His judgment upon His Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark records in his Gospel. God's wrath was being placed upon His Son. Whose wrath? Well, the wrath that your sin and my sin rightly deserves. Jesus is hanging on that cross, bearing not merely the physical pain, but the the spiritual pain and agony of God's wrath. Some have become enamored and focused with all of the gory details of Calvary. About 50 years ago, there was a whole articles written about how painful it would have been and tried to recreate that. Even some in Hollywood have sought to recreate what happened on Calvary's cross. But in all of those depictions, it misses the main idea. That's not to diminish the physical suffering of Christ. but But it is to emphasize that Jesus is bearing God's judgment for your sin and my sin. And it was made clear and visible to the eyes of those, not through blood dripping, but through the fact there was no light, no moon, no sun for three hours. Well, if that wasn't enough for those present, notice here secondly, that while the sun's light was failing, verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, other gospel writers will emphasize from top to bottom. Meaning that, you know, some human didn't walk up, some guy didn't say, hey, let's cut this thing in half. But rather that it was sawn in two. Well, what was this curtain? Well, this curtain was as thick as my hand. It was a massive curtain. Number of feet high. It's a huge, massive thing. It's taken a number of men to just get it to move. But beyond its sheer size, it communicated separation. Right? Why do we put curtains up? Why do we have those curtains down? We don't like the sun to get in our eyes. We, we're separating. It's separating the sun from coming in here. Well, the curtain there in the temple separated the holy from the holy of holies. It, it was an emblematic sign of God being separate from His people because of their sin. Moses was instructed by the Lord in, to erect this curtain in order to communicate that because of their sin, they needed to be atoned for. They needed the sacrifice of the Lamb in order to have access to God. And what is being displayed here in the tearing of this curtain is that Jesus is making a new way to the Father. That there is no longer the veil that separates us, but now we have access. This is what the author of Hebrews writes in his sermon as he reflects upon these ideas. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. See, what Jesus is doing on Calvary is that He is dying to make a new way. Just as the Lamb was slain, 
in order to make atonement for sin. So Jesus is dying as a sacrifice to make a new way for you and I. Well, notice also Luke records in verse 46 Jesus' last words. Last words are often the most important words, aren't they? You may remember individuals for their last words, their dying testimony. It's fascinating, isn't it, that Jesus' last words were Scripture? Jesus' very last words were that of Psalm 31, where David writes of God being his rock and fortress, that for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Scripture was upon Jesus' lips. Jesus was all about Scripture. He was all about fulfilling Scripture in His own life. But we're recorded these vivid details so that we would know that Jesus was in control even on the cross of Calvary. Notice with me, look there at verse 46. Having said this, he breathed his last. This death was unlike any other death. He breathed his last. The verbal idea here is that Jesus was active in his own death. That Jesus, that death didn't just passively come over Jesus. It didn't happen to him. He happened death. You you see this? Jesus is the one who purposed even his own death in order to demonstrate to all of us that he's in control. That he died willingly That this isn't some divine child abuse where the father is pouring out his wrath on his son, but but rather Jesus willingly dies in the place of sinners. Father, not, not my will be done, but yours is the prayer Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. But we also notice here the vivid details by which Luke records how Joseph went and took him off of the cross. And how he wrapped him and cared for him. And how there were women there that witnessed it. Eyewitnesses. That if Theophilus had any doubt in his mind, he could go ask. Women? Mary? Mary? Do you remember that day? Is it true that Joseph wrapped him up in those linen cloths? Is it true that you saw it with your own eyes and they would say, yes, Jesus died? One of the things that in seminary we learned when we have the responsibility to oversee a funeral is to make this statement. That so-and-so, whoever the individual is, died. They died. And he says, why? Because one of the challenges in grief is trying to sort through what's true and what's false, what's real and what's fake. And in the grieving process, we can often think that things 
are true that aren't true. So, so some individuals might suffer with the reality that, oh, this, is, this isn't real, this isn't true, they didn't really die. But what you see Luke doing is in, in a similar way. He wants you and I to know something confident. Jesus really did die. Joseph wasn't mistaken. These women weren't mistaken. His life was gone. Now, of course, Jesus was both divine and man. So it isn't that Jesus just sort of ceased to exist, that the Christ died. No, 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 friend. You have to understand that He's still God, that He never really literally died. The divine Son of God never did die. Just the man died, the God-man. That would be a whole mess in our theology if, if He ceased to live. So as we respond to this, as we think about this, I think, friends, we ought to have assurance and confidence that these things really did take place, that Christ did die in the place of sinners. This isn't just some fiction. My friend, this is true. This is historic. But it's not merely to believe that these things actually happened. These are historic facts. No doubt there was many there today, that day. Even one of the thieves on the cross witnessed everything, yet in unbelief. But we trust that He did this for us. Well, these are the vivid details. Let's look very quickly at the various responses. Look at the various responses that we see in the text. Well, the first response we are witnessing is that of the centurion. Look at him again. There he is. Verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, notice how he responded. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Others have him saying that he's the son of God, sort of a fuller confession. Luke just has the, the bare minimum here as he reports the information. Notice the response. He had seen everything take place. He, had, he was there in the, the halls of the trial. He had witnessed that. This man would have been in charge of the troops that were executing these, these prisoners. He had witnessed the conversation between Jesus and the thieves on the cross. He would have heard his cries for help. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would have heard all of these conversations. He would have seen the way in which he died. Just imagine, he has witnessed countless dozens of executions. What made this one different? What changed? Friend, all we can say is that God sovereignly saved a sinner that day. That God used providentially in this man's life in such a way that the gospel was made clear. Maybe it was in the word, today you'll be with me in paradise. Maybe it was the conversation that Jesus had with the thief on the cross. Well, we don't know for certain, but the response is the response of anyone who rightfully sees and understands Calvary. And that's worship. He worships. He truly is an unexpected source. A Gentile soldier of all the people that would have been saved that day. It is just a reminder to us that we are not very good when we think about divine election. <laughs> because I'm pretty confident if we are thinking of divine election, this guy's not on our list. Right? Because we're mad at him. 
You killed my Savior. You killed my Jesus. You don't get in. Friend, your sin, your life, your brokenness is never too much for God to save. God saved even the men who executed Him on Calvary's cross. How much more have you done that would would think that God couldn't save you? How do you think Luke got this testimony? Friend, I think he got it because he went and talked to him. Because he's a member of the church in Jerusalem. He went down there and he said, hey James, can I talk to one of your parishioners? Yeah, I want to talk to the centurion guy. The guy, you remember him? The guy that made that confession? That Jesus was innocent? He had done nothing wrong? That's the guy I want to interview. I want to hear his testimony. How God had radically transformed his life. How he went from executionary that day to worship for You know, as you think about it, he was the first preacher, that centurion. He was the first one that got to preach the cross. He got to preach the very first sermon as he heralded the truth that he was the spotless Lamb of God who died in the place of sinners. But we also see the crowds, don't we? Verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. Uh, Interesting picture. The crowds, the ones that had cried, crucify him, crucify him. The ones through mob justice had, had basically forced Pilate in order to execute, who Pilate knew was innocent. Crucify him, crucify him. I don't know what they expected to see that day. Perhaps they were going to find joy by watching I'm pretty confident that no one watches an execution and leaves with a smile on their face. Whatever strange hope that they had, look at their response. Look at their response. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Now, for us in our minds, we don't naturally do this, so... This is not a picture of like, yes, I'm amazing. Yes, we are victorious, beating our breast. No, it is a picture of sorrow and grief. What they saw so affected their life that they were broken over it. They were sorrowful over it. That that God had died in this way, that an innocent man, it was a disturbing experience that left them changed forever. Now, of course, we don't know if they ultimately were saved. But I think it's safe to assume that those in the crowd that day were probably the same that stayed in Jerusalem all the way to Pentecost. I mean, it made a travel of many, many miles. They most likely would have stayed over because of the Passover and stayed all the way to Pentecost 40 days later. And they were there that day having in their mind's eye the, the memory of Christ's death, when, Jesus, when Peter declared, there is no other name given among men by which you must be saved. And Luke tells us in Acts that thousands came to know Jesus at Pentecost. I wonder if it was some of those that witnessed in this crowd. 
The third response is that of the disciples. We are told there in verse 49 that his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Other gospel writers communicate the idea that the disciples had scattered. Jesus had prophesied when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter, and that's what they did. They were afraid that they might get hung on a cross, and so they stood at a distance. But the point that Jesus, or excuse me, the point that Luke is making here, again, notice the verb he uses, watches these things. They were watching. They saw everything happen. They were eyewitnesses to everything that we have come to know and believe. The last, op, the last response, look at the last response. It's in Joseph. This is this man named Joseph that's come from the Jewish town of Arimathea. I want you to notice a couple of things about his response. Notice first who he was. He was a rich man. He was wealthy. But notice here that he was a member of the council. What is that? He was the member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, the Jewish establishment that had given rise to the execution of Jesus. He was a part of the group that ultimately got Jesus killed. Just imagine what that room was like. You had him sitting there wondering, like, they're going to literally kill this man? Notice that Luke records that he was a good and righteous man. Verse 51, who had not consented to their decision and action. In other words, what Joseph is about to do is one of the most heroic things we see in Scripture. He is literally going to ask and go against the establishment. He is going to ask for Jesus' body. Now, of course, no one else on the Sanhedrin would have cared, much less thought about what they were going to do to Jesus' body. Historians tell us that, that the Romans, they would just leave the bodies up there for days. They would let the birds eat them, and then they would just throw them into you know, mass graves or, or just out in the elements and, and allow them to rot. But Joseph, in an act of heroism, goes and, and asks Pilate, Hey, Pilate! I know you just killed this guy, but can I have his body? I want to make sure he has a proper burial. Sometimes God calls us into heroic action. Calls us to do things that might cost us our very lives. You know, it's interesting here what Luke records, that he was looking for the kingdom of God. This is a bit of an inclusio, which means a bookend. He's, he's concluding this letter. It's a long letter, isn't it? It's 24 chapters long. You'll be reminded all the way back at the beginning, there were two others, Anna and Simeon. And they too were looking for the kingdom of God. And it's a reminder to each of us that Jesus is the one who has come to usher in this new and better way. Brothers and sisters, as we see the responses of those who who saw the death of Jesus, their responses should be some of our responses. Worship, trust, grief and sorrow. Death was accomplished. Atonement was completed. You have been set free from sin and death. Friend, we ought to have great confidence this morning 
to know that no sin separates us if our faith is in Christ. If Christ has died, then we do not need to fear death. Perhaps some here this morning are afraid. They're growing older. Perhaps you have a sickness. And you're worried about death. A friend, look at the death of Christ and there find comfort. As we'll see next week, Jesus defeated death so that you and I won't have to fear death. Jesus overcame that we too might overcome. Allow these vivid details to give you confidence that these things happened. They're true. That you can depend your soul upon them. Your eternal life on what is contained here. And join in with these responses. For God's glory is good. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice that would take place every year. Two goats were brought up to sacrifice. One, the priest would lay his hand on and confer. It was an emblematic picture of what was going on in the sacrifice. It was that the sins of the people were being laid on this particular animal. And that animal would ultimately be executed. And he would die. And thus, God would pour out his anger for the sin and judgment. There was another goat that was often there. There was two. And the second one was there as well, and his hands were laid on, and, and the sins of the people were conferred on it. But this goat got to live. They would take it outside the city wall. And let it go. And it would be set free. But it's not a picture that you probably think it is. Because a goat outside the walls would most definitely die. Both died in order to satisfy God's wrath. Jesus was hung on Calvary's cross outside the walls to symbolize that He has made atonement and He has satisfied God's wrath. Friend, you ought not to think that God is angry with you today because you didn't read your Bible, because you didn't pray long enough, because you didn't give this morning, or because you were screaming at your wife on the way to church this morning. Whatever else your conscience is bearing witness to you this morning, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that God loves you because Christ died on Calvary for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ's death. Father, we pray that we might, as we somberly consider these things, not hold our heads high but as the crowd did that day, beat our own chest in grief and sorrow. That we loved our sin so much, we held on to it so long, that you had to send your own son to die in our place. 
Forgive us. Oh, Father, may we leave here with uh, overwhelming joy in worship that Christ did die. That Your wrath has been satisfied. That You are no longer angry with us, but now we are in a restored relationship. That we can enjoy You forever. Father, we pray this for Your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.